this is the story of Jesus' first disciples. They came from John the Baptist. They've been following John the Baptist, and it was now time for John the Baptist to start pointing people, including his disciples, to Jesus. And he does that with these two. And as Jesus was passing by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. It says, the next day. Do you see that in your text? The next day, verse 35. And John, we're not going to discover that too much here, but John starts building with this phrase, the next day, the next day, the next day, the third day. Actually, you'll find it in verse 29. Look in there in verse 29, the next day. That is the next day after the Jews had sent some of these leaders who were Pharisees to ask John, are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? And he had to say no to all of that. John was the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The next day, it says in verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him. The next day in verse 35, John sees Jesus walking by him and says, behold, the Lamb of God. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. Not the third day, starting from chapter 1, all the way back there, what, chapter, verse 19, but rather the third day after verse 41, excuse me, 43. The reason why John is doing this is because he, if you count all those days, it's seven days. Within one week, Jesus had already started to draw disciples to him. And in chapter 2, and I'm going to mention this because I'm not sensing the Lord is wanting me to preach on this passage. Chapter 2 about the turning the water into wine. But that was Jesus' first miracle. Jesus, in that moment, began to reveal his glory to his disciples, and they believed in him. John is telling us, John the Gospel writer is telling us within one week, Jesus started having disciples, people following him, and he starts doing miracles, and people are already believing him within one week. So that's why John is setting the next day, the next day. And here are the first two disciples. Why are they following Jesus? Right there in verse 40, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John said and who followed Jesus. Why did he follow Jesus? Because of what John said. Remember, John said, behold, the Lamb of God. There were two things, two epiphanies that we saw last week. And that was when the dove came upon Jesus, that dove represented in the Old Testament two things. Number one, the sacrifice. It was coupled with a lamb. The lamb was was much more expensive. So if you were poor, then you would offer two doves instead of a lamb and a dove. But it represented sacrifice. And he came to this epiphany, this conclusion, this aha light bulb moment. This is the lamb of God, referring to the prophecy of Isaiah 53. The lamb that was silent before his shearers led away to death. He is the Lamb of God, and he takes away the sins of the world. He also came to the conclusion because the dove in the Old Testament represented new life. He remembered Noah sent him out, came back with a little olive branch in his or olive leaf in his beak, 
and it represented new life. The world had been destroyed, but now there was new life. And Jesus, he, he realized Jesus is the son of God, the giver of life. And we see that theme throughout the gospel of John. And so here are the two disciples. We don't know the name of the second one, but one of them is Andrew. Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. As soon as he discovers that Jesus is the Lamb of God, according to what John says, both he and the other disciple of John start following Jesus. And Jesus turns around and he says, what do you want? Now, let me tell you this. Whenever God asks a question or whenever Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know. It's because he wants you to confess something that's in your heart or to confess the truth. If you follow throughout the Old and New Testament, God asks Adam, where are you as if God doesn't know? No, he's looking for Adam to confess. I'm right here and I was ashamed because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? And what we have is a revelation of Adam's sin and he confesses it. And so Jesus is asking a question. He already knows the answer, but he says, what do you want? It's not like, what do you want? No, but what do you want? Trying to draw them out. And it impresses me. Andrew or one of them asks a question to Jesus's question. That's so Jesus-like. When, Je when so many times Jesus has asked a question, he responds with a question. And that's what they do. They respond with, where are you staying? Why would they do that? Why would they, why would they want to know? I mean, where are you staying? Are, are they hoping that Jesus is renting out a condo on the Jordan River or maybe by the Sea of Galilee? Man, we want to swim in your, we want to be in your jacuzzi, right? Or a super nice gated community with a swimming pool and a high dive board. Oh, he loves doing those double gainers off the, off the high dive. Or maybe, maybe he lives in the squalor of downtown Capernaum, and they want to see his ministry to the poor. Now, see, they want to know where he lives because they want to stay, they want to be with, they want to hang out with Jesus. Now, it could have been enough for them to simply say, hey, Jesus, we want to know who are you? That they could have, right there, then and there, they could have just settled it. And Jesus could have said, I'm the son of man, or I'm the son of God, or I'm the lamb of God. Didn't you hear what John said? Or some other title, but he didn't. That's not what they wanted. They wanted more than a title. They'd already heard lamb of God. They wanted to hang out with Jesus and experience him as a person, not as a title, but as a person. I'm not downtrodding what John the Baptist said, of course. They wanted to, okay, son of, lamb of God. So what does that mean? Let's go find out. Now, maybe they plied Jesus with a lot of questions. We don't know. But what we do know is they were hungry for truth. And they hung out with Jesus all day. Now, your Bible says that it was about the 10th hour. Now, this is just a little side note. John uses time references four times in his gospel. This is the first one. 
there are two ways that he could share time. He could do it according to Jewish time, or he could do it according to Roman time. Now, Jewish time starts at 6 in the morning and 6 in the evening. That's not how we base our clock, but that's how the Jews would. So the first hour would have been 7 o'clock, the second hour would have been 8, and the third hour would have been 9 in the morning. So 10, the 10th hour would have been what? 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So some suggest, well, the 4 o'clock is not when they arrive, but when they leave. Now, there are three other references. Let me just suggest to you that the most crucial one is the last one, and that is that on the sixth hour, excuse me, yeah, the sixth hour is when John specifically pinpoints when Jesus is being tried before Pilate. And some suggest that Jesus, excuse me, that John is using Jewish time, but that would place him before Pilate at noon. I'm going to suggest to you that he's using Roman time because if you were to read through his gospel, and there's a lot that could actually be said on this, believe it or not, and you could nerd out if you really want to, if you're like one of those history geeks and you really want to, well, why, how do you know? And, and his writing to a Jewish and Greek or Gentile community, but he realizes that the Gentile community has grown to such an extent they are his first priority when he is writing this. And you can see how he translates words generally from the Aramaic to the Greek just so that the Greek readers could understand. Now, I'm going to suggest that they come to Jesus at 10 in the morning. So it's not when they leave, but when they get there and they spend the entire day, not till four in the afternoon, the whole day. Why? Because they're hungry. They're hungry for truth. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Lamb of God. Tell me more. As soon as Andrew is done with this hanging out with Jesus time, he immediately goes and tells his brother. And he says, we just found the Messiah. This is going to blow you away. Listen. And he, he tells him probably the entire day, Point by point. And, and Peter, I'm sure, is like, just stop. Just stop. Where is he? I want to find out. I, where is he? I want to talk to him. And so Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. He doesn't bring Jesus to Peter. It would be easy, actually. More often than not, it's not that Jesus goes to somebody, but somebody goes to Jesus. And I'm just going to say, that is a demonstration of faith. Regularly, God wants us, you, to respond and come to him. I'm hungry. I want to find out. You know, whenever you're force-fed, it's so hard to swallow sometimes. Whenever you force education on children, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't, just to be, just for the record, but... When you know how to ignite a curiosity in them and they want to study, and usually for our kids, that didn't happen until high school. But they eventually caught on and they wanted to learn and they really got serious about their schooling. I think my oldest, Kate, she was hungry in, in first grade. That's just her nature. She just was always learning. She's, that's who Kate is. But our others, it was more like, I don't know, 10th, 11th, maybe even 12th grade. 
but they were hungry. They would come. They wanted to invite. They wanted to investigate and find out. You know, when, when growing up, I had books forced upon me. I hated reading. And eventually, when I hit college, as late as college, yes, I began to enjoy reading. I was, I've always been a slow reader. But I started reading on my own, and I loved it. I loved reading. I still love reading. If you, ever want, if you, if you want to know what you can get me for my birthday or Christmas sometime, you can come tell me, and you'll eventually hear the title of a book. Oh, I like that book. Or I like, okay, That's, I love books. Peter comes to Jesus, and it's as if as soon as Jesus sees him, he speaks a truth right into Peter's spirit. Now, I keep saying Peter only because that's how we know his name, but his real name, his given name was Simon. If you were to look back in verse 40, even John, the evangelist, introduces him this way, Simon Peter. But his real initial given name was just Simon, just Simon. Simon, his name, son of John, his identity. His name and his identity. Who he, what lineage was he from? John, not John the evangelist, but John, his father. Sometimes it, his name was given as Jonah. You will be called. Do you see that in verse 42? You will be called Cephas. Maybe not right now. Maybe not today. But you will be called Cephas. Now that's Aramaic for rock. And so John helps us out, translates it. That's really Petros or Peter, which means in Greek, rock. So here's my question. Why would Jesus want to change Simon's name. And I'm just going to tell you this. It is more than just a rebranding, if you will. Okay? Don't get me wrong. I think Peter needed some of that. But it, he needed more. He was called Peter, and he would now become a child of God or son of God, not a son of an earthly father, John. But his Identity would eventually be wrapped up in God the Father. John is really the only one who talks about spiritual birth. And we're going to look at that shortly, not tonight. But John speaks about spiritual birth. He speaks about being children of God. And something that changes inside of us. Not physically, spiritually. Our identity then is wrapped up as children of God much more than Mike Curtis, son of David. Well, that was my dad's name. How was Simon not a rock yet? Let me tell you how Simon was not a rock. Simon walked on water and then started drowning. Simon confessed Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and then immediately turned around and rebuked Jesus, the Son of God. Simon cut off the servant of the high priest's ear to defend Jesus and just about an hour or two maybe later denied Jesus three times. This is Peter, impetuous. How would Simon 
be a rock. We don't really discover this until Pentecost, when his real nature is changed. He preached on Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. He's in the very next chapter, Acts 3, it's the first recorded miracle by anyone who wasn't Jesus, his disciples. They heal a lame man at the gate beautiful. Peter was imprisoned and miraculously freed by an angel twice. He was the first to evangelize the Gentiles. Cornelius chapters 10 and 11. The Holy Spirit falls on them and they realize, oh my goodness, the gospel it should be proclaimed to the Gentiles as well for their believing and are being added to the church. And then in chapter 9, we see that he healed Aeneas and actually raised Dorcas from the dead. No one had ever done that in the New Testament aside from Jesus. Peter was the first. Peter has a voice in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. It's not that he was the leader, though. It's not that he was, as some would say today, the pope. It is true that in Matthew 16, he says, on this rock, I will build my church because the church was founded on the apostles and prophets. See, Peter wasn't the only rock on which the church was built. It was built on Jesus as the cornerstone, the main foundation, the teaching of Jesus but the apostles and prophets giving a scripture, they were the ones who were the truth bearers, having witnessed what Jesus said and did, and they were the ones who proclaimed the gospel, and lives were changed, turned upside down. He was one of those guys. Peter became a rock. He was impetuous, though. He was moved by desires and emotions, but he would become a foundation stone, a petros for the church now led by the Spirit's impulse. So what's in a name change? Why would Jesus want to change his name? Let me just suggest to you that the very first thing that we discover when someone changes someone else's name, it communicates or demonstrates an authority over that person. We find that in the very beginning of Genesis. Adam is asked to name all the animals. He has been given dominion over the animals. Not dominion over other people, but dominion over the animals. And he names them. In part, the reason is because he was demonstrating an authority there. Now, if you don't believe me, we move on. God changed Abram's and Sarai's names to Abraham and Sarah. Why? Not only was, would those names be prophetic, as Peter would be, but it was to demonstrate authority. He was their master. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Nebuchadnezzar changed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel's name. Because he had authority to do that. And guess what? Just a few weeks ago, Diego and Rose named their child. We all did. As parents, we name our children. 
We have that authority. But hopefully that name communicates something. Secondly, the reason why Jesus changed Peter's name or gave him a new name is because it was prophetic. It was more than a rebranding. It was a prophetic word. It was speaking something of life into Peter's spirit. This is who you will be, Peter. Let me just tell you a a few things. Go over to Isaiah chapter 62, if you would. Isaiah 62, I'm going to read five verses to you. This is a prophecy about Jerusalem, and I just want to tell you that many times in the Old Testament, when a prophecy is given to Israel or Jerusalem, many times it is to be understood prophetically to refer to the church in the New Testament. We're going to see that here. It's more than just that they're Jewish. It's that they're going to become the people of the new covenant. Who are the people of the new covenant? Are they just Jews? No, they're Jews and Gentiles. So I'm going to read these five verses. Please realize it is more than just to the people of Jerusalem. Church, it is to you and me. Chapter two, excuse me, chapter 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will, I will not remain quiet. Till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness. Who is you in this? Your, it's Zion, this Jerusalem. It is prophetically the church, the people, the new people of God in the new covenant. That's you and me. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. Church. There is a glory that God is producing in you. I want to be careful with that, by the way. But there is a glory that God is producing in you as he's conforming us more and more into this image of the Son of God with ever-increasing glory. We go through um, light, light trials that are producing in us a glory. So there is a glory, there is something God is producing in us. Anyway, he goes on and he says, you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. Hmm. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hands, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you, that is the nations, no longer will they call you deserted. The people of God in the old covenant were called deserted church. God had abandoned them because of their sin and their waywardness, and they just refused to come to God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate. But you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As young man marries a maiden, so will your sons, perhaps better translated builder, marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Do you see that? Before you came to Christ, you were truly deserted. 
But when you came to Christ, he calls you, my delight is in her. That's what Hephzibah means. We were desolate, alone, unloved. But now in Christ, we are married, which is what Beulah means, dear, and therefore dearly loved. Church, God changes our name. In the new covenant, when you came to Christ, he changed your name. He did that to demonstrate authority, but he did that prophetically. You know one of the names? There's many of them in the New Testament. Here's one of them. You are saints. Do you know what saints means in the Greek? Hagioi. Saints means holy ones. Your nature has changed. You've not just been rebranded. You haven't just been looked good on the outside like the apartments were painted. You've been changed on the inside. I was, I'm wondering, did, they, did this apartment complex actually change their security staff? I, I, I don't have an answer for that. I truly don't know. Did they upgrade some of the apartments? Did they in some way make it more safe? I don't have answers to those questions. But too often, when businesses rebrand, it only has to do with their marketing. It doesn't have to do too much with changing the brand or changing the product at all. It's just people's perception. It's superficial, generally. God does so much more in your life. As saints, he changes you. He gives you a new nature. Do you feel tempted to sin? Consider this, you're a holy one in Christ. God has empowered you now no longer to be a slave to sin. He's actually given you power, grace, to walk in holiness. He's given you this power. When we stumble into sin, the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times but rises again. He's empowered you to rise again. You've been called saints of God. If you've been struggling this week in sin, God today is prophetically speaking to your heart. You're a holy one of God. Get that in your spirit. You see, it's more than just mind over matter. This is spiritual. We need to get this in our spirit. This is a truth. When we get truth in us, it becomes like a river overflowing in our spirit. Get this truth in you. You're a holy one. You're a saint. He gives you another name. It's called ecclesia, the church, the called out ones. The next time you're tempted to do or act or speak like the world, remember this. You've been called out of the world. You're not a part of the world. You've been rescued from the world. Why would you want to go back and be like the world? But I understand temptation. Because even though we've been given a new nature, we still have the flesh that battles against that. I'm just saying, church, prophetically, you are a called out one. Live that way. Be that way. You've been given power to. You've also been called living stones. In 1 Peter, Peter chapter 2, he says that all of you guys are living stones, and that you're being built together. We are connected with one another. We're fitted together. As Paul says, you've been 
can, you've been joined together and rise together to become a holy temple in the Lord in which he lives by his spirit. We're joined together. The next time you have a grudge against a brother or a sister in Christ, remember, they're a living stone as much as you are. And maybe as you're rubbing shoulders, you're rubbing off some of the rough edges of each other. But you are called to fit together. You're a living stone. You're not a dead stone. You're a living stone. There's life in you. You're empowered to live with people who you believe are not very loving, are not very easy to get along with. You're going to find those types of people in the church too. But we're living stones. And God has fitted us together. Juliana was bringing out very prophetically, by the way, in that passage in Nehemiah 4, where Sanballat says, you're just a bunch of burned stones. That means you're cracked. You've been heated up so much, you've been cracked. And now when stones are cracked, they don't fit well together. That's what the devil speaks into your spirit. That's what the devil wants you to believe. You are not a burned stone, church. If you were, you're not today. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's made you a living stone that by his power and grace can get along. You know what? Instead of us praying so much for that person who needs to learn how to just stop being so difficult, stop being a prickly pear, maybe God needs to minister us and say, you know what? You need to learn how to forgive. You need to learn how to not hold a grudge. You need to learn how to love people who are just hard to love because guess what? Maybe some people think you are hard to love too. Should I go there? The truth is we are trying, we are called to be living stones. He has given us a new name. Here's another one. He's called you to be a super conqueror. I'm not making that phrase up. You've probably heard it differently. You're, you, are a, you are more than conquerors. That's how Romans 8, what is it, verse 37 calls us. Turn there for just a moment. Romans 8, 37. It says this. It asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship, this is verse 35, or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He gives a quote here, and then he says, no. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And then he says this, in all these things, in all your trouble and hardship and persecution and danger, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. The Greek word there is, this. the prefix is hooper. It's literally translated in English, super. You are a super conqueror. Conqueror of what? What he just called out here. That there is nothing that the world can do to pull us from the love of God. We are that secure in him. Now, I'm not saying anything about what we might do, but what the world does in all of these things and in, in the sand ballots in your life and in our generation calling down the church, Jesus has called you up. He has called you to be a super conqueror. None of these things can pull you from God's love. His favor does not change. If this past week you were so fed up with how hard life was, there was not one time, not one time, church, in which you fell out of God's favor. There was not one time in which he looked down upon you 
and said, oh my goodness, do I have to put up with him or her again today? Not one time. His love for you is infinite. See, that's his nature because he is an infinite God. His love for you does not change. He's given you a new name. You, church, are super conquerors. You, are, you rise up within those moments and you fall upon the grace of God and he's your anchor, he's your stability, he's your source, he's your everything. He is your abundant life. Everything that you need for life and godliness is found in him. He's your source for all of it. If the devil's been whispering in your ear, you're a burned stone. Remember back in your life, see today, you're just like that. No, you are not. Maybe in that moment, there was a reflection of who you used to be, but you are not that old man anymore or that old, and I don't mean that you're old. Old meaning that's who I used to be. That's the old Mike Curtis. The old Mike Curtis was 14, by the way. That old Mike Curtis, that's not who I am anymore. I'm a new man in Christ. If you're a female, you're a new woman in Christ, okay, if I have to say that. You're new. You're new. You know, today we were going to be having uh, Tora Fura come and share her testimony. And so I had this thing prepared at the very end that I wanted to brag on her a little bit about. But... She's sick today, and so she's going to share her testimony next week. But Tor is a different person today. The reason why she's a different person is because Jesus did an official extreme makeover in her life. And he's in this process of just continuing this amazing change from where she was dabbling in the darkness and just pulling her out of all of that deception and all of those lies into truth and who she truly is in Christ. You know who she is in Christ? She's a Victoria, which means victory. She is the one who will be victorious, a super conqueror over sin, over struggles, over temptations, over those things in life that we would normally just say, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of pursuing Jesus. What is it gaining me? She's a Victoria. She, is a, she is, has victory in Christ. Now, it is interesting, by the way, that over time she acquired a nickname. Do you know what that nickname is? I probably already gave it away. We call her Torah. Now, maybe I'm getting a little hokey here. I don't know. I'll be open to that accusation. But do you know what the Torah is? The, not the, Torah is the first five books of the Bible. It is what all Jews predicated their life upon because that was truth. That is the main struggle that Torah had over the last year or two with truth. We're just wrestling with who is this God? Has he really changed me? And she was dabbling in the lies of the world and just uprooted her. And he was working overtime. The devil was working overtime to destroy her with lies. But she's a new person. She is a Torah. Her life is predicated on truth and not lies. She's going to be listening to God now, getting in the word and not error. And I'm going to tell you this. You 
have truth. You are a new creation in Christ. You have a new name. And if the devil's reminding you of what you were like in the past, just remind him, yeah, devil, that's who I was in the past. That is not who I am today. And if he tries to make you think that is who you are today, he is, guess what, a liar. Guess what language he speaks. It's not English or French or it's not Aramaic or Greek. It is lies. That's the language that he speaks. That's his native tongue. We find that actually in John 8. Lies. That's, that's Satan's native tongue. He's just lying to you. Don't believe a word he says. Tonight, I want to leave you with that truth. You've been called by a new name. We could go on, church. You know what? We could talk about how you are alive to God. Then, church, live that way. You're a holy one, so live that way. You are redeemed. You've been bought, and you are now owned by God. You're his precious one. Then live that way. You are a child of God. Live that way. You're a chosen, precious one. You're his favored one. I'm not saying you're his favorite. I'm saying you're his favored one. Live that way. You are his beloved. Church, let's live that way. Can you stand with me? Father, what a privilege it is to be bought and owned by the God that created us, that has now washed us by the blood of the Lamb of God and has given us new life through the Son of God. And I just ask you tonight, tonight, Lord God, encourage us. If we've been battling with lies and deceptions, questions that are trying to pull us away from God, I ask God, may we stand firm in truth tonight. And that truth is, we have a new name. We have been changed by the very power and the authority of God himself. May we live that way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I want to celebrate communion tonight. Communion represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It communicates to us that he did something as the Lamb of God and sacrificed something for each of us. And that night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he actually said that this was his body. This was his body. Actually, in John 6, he says, unless you eat of my flesh, this living bread, and drink of my blood, the cup, you have no life in you. And all he is saying there, church, is that this right here, this is simply an outward symbol. But spiritually, we feed from him. We drink from him. He's our source. He's our source of life. Wow. This is his body. And it was broken for you. Isaiah 53 words it a little differently. It says it was he was crushed for you. Mm. The lamb sacrificed. Jesus gave up his life. The most precious thing, commodity, this universe has ever known. The life of the son of God. He laid it down.